You know, as I was uh, preparing, and actually, before I, before I start, let me pray again here for just a second. Father, we love you and are just so thrilled. You're the great gift giver. You've given us yourself and your son. Your son gave us your spirit. And uh, you've given us your word. And we just ask that we'd be receivers of, of you, more of you and more of the truth of your word this morning. Help us to think your thoughts. And in that truth, Lord, find the kind of freedom that liberates us and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. I was floored uh, last week uh, thinking about this morning that this was Thanksgiving week. And so this is going to be a busy week for most of us here, baking turkeys and pies and, and uh, tempted, I'm sure, to eat far, far more than is our want on the day, maybe some naps that afternoon too. But, you know, really we join this rich history in Thanksgiving Day. We're joining pilgrims and presidents when we set aside a day and and conscientiously say thank you to God for his providential care over our lives in this last year and for all the ways he's blessed us and provided for our needs. You know, if you go back to that first Thanksgiving day, the one we typically think of was in 1621 and the pilgrims there in Plymouth. And if you remember the story, a little more than 100 people sailed on the Mayflower and came to Plymouth and they landed in December. Not the best time to start a new colony in the new world. And so of that uh, little over 100 that started, about half of those died in the first winter and year. So you can imagine by the time they got to that fall harvest of 1621, they had shelter, they were bringing in a harvest of corn, and for the pilgrims as well as those Indians in the northeast United States, corn was the primary food staple. That's what they ate. So they've got a harvest, They've got game, they've got fish and shellfish from the ocean and the the tidal areas, and this is a good time. And they are thankful. You know, this is the surviving half of that group that had come across. So they celebrate that and they set that time aside. It's a feast for them and they thank God for it. Now, they had enough to get through that next winter of 1621, but, but basically they just barely had enough. And the same thing the following year, 1622, is more the same. They plant their corn crops, they harvest, and you know what? There's just barely enough food to go around. And they realize this is not working. We, we are too close to starvation based on what we're planting and harvesting. Now, I didn't learn this in grade school growing up, but you know the pilgrims when they came across, they were operating under a charter a legal charter whereby they had permission to come and take this land and settle it and develop it. And under that charter, the, the requirements of that charter would be described by us today as communism, which is just to say that that group came over and the charter required that they hold all things in common. They each had an equal share. So if there was a profit after seven years, they'd share that. But it also meant related to the food that each person got the same share. Now, do you see where this is going? They got the same share no matter what they did or didn't do. So in those first two years of planting corn, there were people who said, you know what, I'm a lady, I'm a little delicate, I don't think I'm really up to planting that crop and caring for that corn. And there were others who were able-bodied but sort of said, you know, I don't think I am either. 
So Governor William Bradford said, you know what, we've got to do something here. We've got to change the course we're on. This is trouble. So they pitched the communist model they had. And they went to what we would call a capitalistic model immediately. And this is what they did. They took that same area of land, and they said, we're going to divide that land now up into parcels. Some will be bigger, some will be smaller. Every family is going to have its own parcel. And if someone wasn't already attached to a family, they were put under one of those family groups. And then they were told, you're responsible for your own food. So you're going to eat what you grow. Guess what happened to planting and production? Through the roof. Because now they were personally responsible. Now it mattered what they did. And what they didn't do would cost them later. And when they shifted gears from, I'm going to get whatever everyone else gets based on what someone else does for me, when they left that model behind, it only took two years. Suddenly, production booms. And they have plenty of grain. That changed the dynamic of the Plymouth Colony. The passage we're in this morning is, as I read it this morning, and I think as most of us do too, it's, uh, it's strange to our ears. It sounds harsh. It sounds unloving. It sounds positively unchristian. But this is part of God's instruction to the church through Paul to his friends at the Thessalonian church. And they had a similar problem to the pilgrims. There were people in their midst who who were able to work, but weren't willing to work. This was causing trouble. And so God, through his apostle, addresses this issue, guys, of just of work, of personal responsibility. And as we look at this passage this morning, note as we go through, you know some of our teachings through here, they've been just two verses long. Well, we're verses 6 through 15 this morning. Do you know that Paul's treatment of work, this sounds very basic, and at one level it is. He's talking about something that might sound to us unspiritual. Going to work, holding a job, This is the single biggest treatment in this letter. Continuous treatment is this last issue he winds down with, which is just about us being productive and responsible for ourselves to work as we're able to and to provide for ourselves and our families. And as you hear this this morning, both the text and what we'll follow up with on application and exposition, remember that the pilgrims, like the Thessalonians, weren't being singled out that those who were incapable were being called to account. Paul is addressing those who are able to work, but were unwilling to. And so look, if you will, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 6 through 15. By the way, I'm going to truncate. I probably won't hit all the, the points on your study sheet this morning because I'll run way too long if I do. 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 15, Paul's last issue before he winds down this letter. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. 
For you yourselves know how you must imitate us. We were not irresponsible among you. We did not eat anyone's food free of charge. Instead, we labored and struggled working night and day so that we would not be a burden to any of you. It is not that we don't have the right to support or to be supported by the Thessalonian church, but we did it to make ourselves an example to you so that you would imitate us. In fact, when we were with you, this is what we commanded you. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. For we hear that there are some among you who walk irresponsibly, not working at all, but interfering with the work of others. Now we command and exhort such people by the Lord Jesus Christ that quietly working they may eat their own food. Brothers, do not grow weary in doing good, and if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take note of that person. Don't associate with him, so that he may be ashamed. Yet don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Does this sound strange to your ears as it does to mine? It sounds fairly harsh, almost unchrist like right? Jesus calls us to love. That's the key mark of a Christian, right? For each other. And he's writing to everyone in the church and he talks about commands to shun and not feed. Almost sounds unloving, doesn't it? Let's work through this. Paul says three times here that he's commanding them. This is interesting. When he spoke earlier about eschatology and doctrine, you don't see this same language. But here, when he brings up this issue of work three times, he says, I'm commanding you. I'm not asking for your opinion. I'm not telling you this is a good idea. I'm commanding you to do these things. And two of those times, specifically attached to two of the commands, he says, what I'm saying, this is not my opinion, it's not my my good idea, the things I'm commanding you are in Jesus Christ's authority. The things I'm telling you about work and personal responsibility are by Jesus' authority and command. So what Paul says here is, guys, you must listen to me because it's the Lord of the church, the Lord of your salvation, that's speaking through these commands for personal responsibility and work. If you look there in verse 6, you see the first one, we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see the command and the authority in which it's given. And this is the command to keep away from every brother who walks irresponsibly and not according to the tradition received from us. If you remember back in chapter 2, Paul had said, hold on to the traditions we've given you. And that wasn't just the teaching about Jesus, the gospel. That was also about personal responsibility and work and labor. And on this first command, he says effectively this, shun, don't invite over, And don't go over to their house. Treat like unbelievers those in your midst who refuse to work. Shun them. That sounds unloving. Sounds unchristian, doesn't it? Shun them. This isn't the only time that we're uh, Christians are called to this kind of attitude and action towards other believers. We'll see another here in just a, a couple of minutes. But shun them. It sounds so unloving. It sounds so unchristian, but Paul, with Jesus' authority, says, 
If these able-bodied ones in your midst refuse to work, you're not to fellowship with them. You're to shun them. That's the first command. The second one's in verse 10. This is what we commanded you. He's reminding them what he already told them before he left. If anyone isn't willing to work, he should not eat. If anyone is not willing, you see here again, this isn't about ability. This is about a willingness to work. And you remember we talked about this before. Apparently, when the Thessalonians had trusted Christ based on Paul's preaching, they knew that Jesus could return. They believed at any moment. And so it said, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven. So some of these guys, thinking this was spiritual, they quit their jobs. I'm waiting for Jesus. I'm being spiritual. I'm being a good Christian. I quit my day job, and now I'm just waiting. My eyes are on heaven, and I'm being spiritual. And Paul says, well, no, not really. The spiritual thing would be to keep your day job because you don't know at what point Jesus is going to return. The spiritual thing is not to quit working and being responsible and providing for yourself. The spiritual thing is to keep going to work and keep paying the bills, keep providing for yourself and for your family and have some to be generous towards others as well. That was the spiritually minded thing to do. They thought it was to quit working and sit on their duffs. And Paul says with Jesus' authority, that's not it. You're missing the mark. If you're not working, he says, the second command is, don't eat. If you didn't go to the fields, if you're not at your job, if you're not contributing, then don't eat. This would imply for the others also, don't feed them. See, if you're not associating with them, you're not going to feed them and they're not going to eat. When our girls were little and we wanted to impress upon them the importance of work, this was the second verse we made them memorize. The first one was, children, obey your parents, from Ephesians. And the second one was, if you don't work, you don't eat. We're responsible. If we're able, we're participating. We're going to work. We're contributing. So the second command, if you're not working, don't show up at the supper table. The third command there in verse 12, we command and we exhort Such people, we command and exhort the people who are refusing to work that they quietly work and eat their own food. We command that you go back to work and be responsible to provide for your own needs. He points out here too in verse 11, The folks who are being spiritual by not working were actually busybodies, Paul says. You're causing trouble for those who are about the business God's given them. You need to get back to work and you need to provide for your own needs. Now, three commands, sounds fairly harsh. Shun them if they refuse to work. Uh, You're not going to associate with them. You're not feeding them and they need to get back to work and provide for their own needs. This is hardcore. This is what Jesus says through Paul to the churches then, to the pilgrims in their day, and certainly to us in our day as well. Now, you've got similar verses elsewhere in the Scripture. 1 Timothy 5, verse 8, If a man doesn't provide for himself, he's worse than an unbeliever. Christians should know our responsibility before God better than anyone else. And so there, to Timothy at the church in Ephesus, Paul said, Christians of all people should be working should be responsible. 
We know who we belong to. Created in his image, redeemed to his fellowship, we of all people should be following God's design to work. You see, in Ephesians 4.28, same thought again. Paul says, to those of you who used to steal, don't steal anymore. Not only quit stealing, but now positively, you go work. You work with your hands so that you have enough for yourself. And not only that, but you have enough to provide for others as well. You know, one of the things about personal responsibility in working is that we're not just selfishly meeting our own needs and desires. The thought is that we'll, we'll be productive enough that we'll have excess to be generous towards others with as well. And that's what he told those people who used to take things away from other people, Paul says. No, you go to work now so that you'll have the ability to give to other people instead. So the bottom line here is the command by Paul was just like Bradford's command to Plymouth. Each able-bodied person is to get to work, provide for themselves, and be responsible. Hardcore Christianity. Paul says here too, imitate us. Do what we do. Look at verse 7. You yourselves know how you must imitate us. The Greek word there is what we get our word mimic from. Mimic my behavior. Do what I do. Have your life look like my life, what I'm doing. Verse 9, you see the same thing again. He says it's not that we don't have the right to support. When Paul was with them, Paul received no financial support from the church at Thessalonica. Although he makes clear in 1 Corinthians 9 that usually those itinerant missionaries and evangelists and pastors locally would be supported by the local churches. But he says, when I was with you, I didn't exercise that right. And I didn't do that because I wanted to provide for you an example. I wanted to give you behavior that you could mimic. And if you saw me simply being supported by others, you might get the wrong idea that you're supposed to be supported by others. So Paul says here, nope, this is my... This is my example to you, verses 7, 8, and 9. He says, I wasn't irresponsible. I paid for all the food I ate. I didn't sit at any of your tables and you fed me on your time and your dime. I paid for everything I ate. Uh, I labored, he says. In fact, the term struggle means painful toil. Paul was working double shifts. He was doing two jobs when he was with them. His, his trade was as a tent maker. We assume that's what he was doing, though he doesn't specify that here. But that it was tent making during the day, and he's preaching and he's discipling at night. He's working double shifts because he wants them to see in his behavior an example they can mimic, they can model. And Paul's example is hardworking, self-sacrificing, providing not only for his own needs but for the needs of others, and sharing Christ with others all along the way. So Paul says, I've given you an example so that you can imitate me. That's hardworking. It's not about taking time off. It's about going to your day job. That's the spiritual and the loving thing to do. Now, in Paul's day, it was common for rabbis in the Jewish religion to have a trade, a craft. Like the Germans, perhaps today, the German culture... The Jews valued craftsmanship and the ability of a person to work with their hands and to do something well. And it wasn't looked down on for a rabbi to have a trade. They were both respected. 
Think about this too. Paul is following the example of his Lord and Master. You remember last week we said one of the primary arguments for Christians to pray is that Jesus prayed. If God the Son on earth prays, pretty good chance I should be praying too. If Jesus knew how to honor the Father and he prayed, pretty good chance that's a good idea for me. So, so take that thought, now move it to the arena of work. So let's just say Jesus dies at about 33, about, and his ministry was about three to three and a half years long. So I wonder what he was doing for all those other years before then. You know, you got bar mitzvahed, you're considered a young adult in Jewish culture around 13 or 14. What do you think Jesus was doing from 13 to 30? He was working, wasn't he? He was a carpenter. He was going into the shop with his dad while Joseph was still alive. In other words, Jesus spent about 17 years, more than five times the amount of time as a blue-collar laborer compared to his spiritual ministry. Yet when he died, he said to the Father, I've accomplished everything you meant me to do. If Jesus praying is a model for us to pray, Jesus working is certainly a model for us to work. We are not better than our master. And Jesus worked. And he provided for himself and his family. Certainly we should too. Now, lest we get the wrong thought on this about the motivation, working Christians, pilgrims or back in the early church, had towards those who were refusing to work when they're being addressed, look down at verses 14 and 15 here. On one hand, in verse 14, you see Paul saying, if they don't obey, take note of that person, don't associate with them, that they might be ashamed. You know, psychologists will tell you today, shame is a bad thing. This word can also mean confound or frustrate. But the thought was, you want them to become so agitated through their conscience or just through frustration that they choose to turn. That's a positive thing. And look at the motivation in 15 Paul says we're to have. Don't treat him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. The person who's refusing to obey, we don't despise them. We don't hate them. We don't look down on them. Shunning such a person is not something that makes us feel better, that we're happy about. Paul says, when you take this action, which to us sounds so harsh today, Paul says you're to do so with the kind of brotherly love that Paul had for his friends there. It's always about love. If you look in Matthew 18 that passage in which Jesus instructs us on how to confront each other over sin. If your brother sins, go and reprove him. If he listens, if he repents, you've won your brother. If not, take a witness. If not, go to the church. And at the end, if he won't uh, listen, then you're to put him out. He's to be treated as a Gentile, an unbeliever. He's to be put out of the fellowship. In that scenario, though, in Matthew 18, love is always the motive and restoration was always the goal. Love was always the motive. Restoration was always the goal. This is not a plea for Christians becoming anything less than loving. This action is in and of itself meant to be loving. So this isn't a call for us to be narrow-minded or small in our thinking or judgmental, anything like that. Paul says when you're dealing with these brothers, just like in Matthew 18, your motive is supposed to be love for them. And the goal is always restoration. 
always. Now, along with this, I find this really interesting. This is strong language. Shun that Christian. Don't associate with them. Ignore them. Don't feed them. Don't help them with this irresponsible behavior. Sounds really harsh. But listen to what that does or think about what that does and what level this elevates this issue about work to. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul said, in the face of gross immorality, a man was to be kicked out of the local church. Same thing. He was to be shunned for gross sexual immorality. If you go to the end of Paul's letter to Titus, Paul there says to Titus, if you confront a heretic, the word there in your Bibles, it'll be translated differently, but it's the word we get heresy from. If you confront a brother over a basic doctrine central to the teachings of the Scriptures and he refuses to listen, you're to avoid him. You're to do the same thing. You're to shun him. Heretics and the sexually immoral are shunned and yet here Paul says those who refuse to work are treated in the same way as heretics and the sexually immoral. That changes the way I think about the importance of being responsible to work and to provide. Because God's call in all three of those areas is the same. God's treating it the same as he was immorality and heresy. He takes this issue about us working and being productive and being responsible very, very seriously. Now, this raises some practical issues, too. And this is probably where I'll zoom through your study sheet a little bit more quickly. Guys, it's a given, whether you're in the church or you're in the culture at large, it's a given that we have what we tend to call today a safety net. A safety net. That is a provision for people who cannot provide for their own needs, either because physically or mentally they're incapable, or they find themselves in an economy in which work is simply not to be found. You see that? You know, historically now we're in a time that the closest comparison is to the Great Depression, Uh, financial failures, people losing their homes, people looking for jobs unable to find them. We're in historic times right now that there will always be need for some people who would otherwise be able to and some who never will be able to, to be provided for is a given. That's a given, whether we're thinking about the church or the culture at large. This is the deal, though. The time and the place we live uses a system of safety nets which just seems to me clearly to go beyond anything the Scripture would defend or find healthy. In fact, I think arguably what, what has become some people call the welfare culture in our own time actually harms people more than it helps. And so I want to address this just a little bit. You will see the, the practice of the early church, the practice of Jesus and the disciples, and the practice of the Jews in the Old Testament was always the same. It was to care for those who could not care for themselves and to care for those who were broadly called poor. That is, they find themselves in a situation in life in which there's been some failure, whether that's crops or business, could be a number of things. wide variety of things would be covered here. But they temporarily, at least, are unable to provide for their own needs. And the Scripture addresses this throughout. And before I forget it, let me say this. Paul's absolutely clear here in 2 Thessalonians 3. You've got to work. If you're able, you've got to work, be responsible, and provide for yourself. On the other side, if you look throughout the Bible, you'll see 
that a culture or the churches or the nation of Israel's treatment of the poor is one of the cardinal means by which the spiritual health of that group was determined. If you look through the prophets in the Old Testament when God indicts them for sin, about half of those indictments are for the way they treat each other. Not gross idolatry, what we would call social issues, the way they treated each other in an unloving way. So whatever you hear this morning, don't hear me saying, or, and don't confuse what Paul's saying, that if someone's unable to provide for themselves temporarily or always, we are called in Christ's name and in Christ's love to be means of provision for them. What Paul is saying is we don't want to curse people who are capable and able to work but refuse to by providing for them. That, Paul says, is not the loving thing. So if you go back quickly, skip through some of these verses rather quickly here. In Acts 6, verse 1, the early church was taking care of the widows in their midst. This, in fact, led to the first group of deacons. The church was feeding the widows in Jerusalem. And the Greeks, the non-Jewish widows, were not being fed adequately. And so they bring this up to the church. Hey, guys, this isn't right. The church was meeting the needs of the widows. You see the same thing in 1 Timothy 5. You see that a couple different ways, by, by the way. The church was providing for those elderly women who didn't have families to provide for them, and they were incapable of it. The church provided for them. We, uh, as a church many years ago, uh, were giving support to an elderly woman whose health was compromised, who was not married at the time, and we were trying to be gracious and helpful, biblically so, right, trying to do the right thing. And, and uh, she sort of wasn't having it. She said, really, you're not doing right by me. You're not giving me enough. You're not providing enough. So I just said, listen, would you do me a favor? Would you read 1 Timothy 5 and then call me back? So she read 1 Timothy 5. She called me back, and she said, I don't qualify for support from the church. It, it totally changed the way she looked at it. Verses 9 through 13 in 1 Timothy 5 qualify the widows that would be supported by the church. The fact that you were a widow didn't mean the church would support you even. But you see the early church providing for those folks in their own midst who couldn't provide for themselves. James 1.27, hopefully a familiar verse to you, pure and undefiled religion is this. It's to take care of widows and orphans in their distress. And again, the way we treat the weakest in our midst, God says, is a key indicator of whether we share His heart. You know, when we were without power, when we were unable to bring ourselves back to God, that's when God sent us a Savior at His cost, His time, His dime. And that's our model here. If you're unable, we want to be part of the solution, God's provision for you. The poor also are treated broadly in Scripture that the church, Jesus and his disciples, the Jews in the Old Testament, they provided, they were commanded to provide for the poor. Um, Galatians 2, I'll just mention this very briefly. When Paul met the apostles in Jerusalem, they said, Paul, do us a favor. When you go to the Gentile Christians, take up a collection and send it back to Jerusalem because we've got a, a lot of poor, needy people. The cause for that's not clear. But Paul says, fine, we'll do that. In the epistles in the New Testament, when you read about collections and giving, almost always it has to do with this collection for the poor Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. So the church, the Gentile church, was helping meet the needs of the poor Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and that's throughout most of the New Testament epistles. 
Let me mention too, very briefly, Acts 2. If you read what I would term liberal Christians or liberal-leaning Christians, they will use Acts 2 as a model and say the early church actually practiced what we would today call communism. Because the verse there says they held all things in common. Uh, that's a misreading of the text. They, did, they were sharing what they had with each other. And if you go later from Acts 2 to Acts 5, you see that when a couple named Ananias and Sapphira held some land, they sold that land, and they brought the money to Peter, and they gave it to them. Peter says to Ananias, the land was yours to do with as you pleased. That's private property. That's not communism. The money, when you sold the land, was yours to do with as you pleased. It was your money. Acts 2 is not a model for communism. You have a very unique situation there in which, remember when the Spirit comes and Peter preaches, that's Pentecost. You have Jews from all over the Roman world flooding Jerusalem. And those that got saved, they didn't plan on staying there. They didn't know God was going to interrupt their lives and their schedules. They don't want to leave and go home yet. This was the birth of the church and new things going on. They've stayed longer than they had provision for. And so those in Jerusalem who have means, they sold what they had and they took care of these folks while they stayed in Jerusalem. So Acts 2 is not a model for a communistic economy. It simply won't work. You can't get that out of the text. Jesus and his disciples practiced hospitality to the poor routinely. The night of the Last Supper, uh, Jesus told Judas when he left, You know, leave what you do, do quickly. And the disciples think Judas is either buying something they need or giving to the poor. That's because Jesus' routine was to give to the poor. Jesus, an itinerant minister who was uh, dependent on other people to provide for his needs, was himself giving funds regularly to the poor. You see the same thing in Matthew 26.9. The law in the Old Testament, I'll just reference uh, Deuteronomy 15. Uh, If your brother finds himself destitute, they were told, don't be hard-hearted or tight-fisted. Be open-handed and loan him enough for whatever he needs. The Jews did that. They were in covenant with God. That meant they were to bless each other as need arose. Now, we have need for great discernment in this as a given. Have you guys been on the street and had someone approach you and say, hey, would you give me some money, however it's phrased? And don't you struggle and you wonder, wow, uh, should I or shouldn't I? Is this helpful to them or is this not helpful to them? You know, what do I do? We need discernment when we want to bless those who are in need. We want to make sure that we are helping and not hurting. Guys, I'm going to skip a bunch of stuff here just for the sake of time. <clears throat> the whole issue of, of poverty and the welfare nation we find ourselves in the United States For the last two decades, uh, the U.S. Census Bureau reports that about 30 million people are are poor by government standards. 30 million people are poor. They live at or below the poverty line. Now, if I say to you someone's poor, in my mind that carries a certain imagery. But the average poor person, average poor person in the United States today lives in a well-maintained house or apartment, has uh, has cable TV, two color TVs, Microwaves, washer, dryer, ceiling fans, wireless phones, toasters. They've got everything. It looks like your house or mine, I think, is the deal. So when we think or when you hear government statistics and government policy based on government statistics, 
about welfare, you need to hold that a little lightly because how we define poor in our country is not the way the rest of the world defines poor and certainly not the way the rest of history has defined poor either. Uh, Jesus said that the poor we would always have with us. And in the United States, we declared what was called the war on poverty as if poverty, the poor condition, could be eradicated. I find that interesting. Jesus says you'll always have the poor, and we say we can eradicate poverty. I'm thinking, what's the chance? Jesus or Lyndon Johnson? You know, who do I think is right? Not hard. You know, but what, what followed was what we today might call the welfare nation. And we can be and we should be soft-hearted, you know, towards your brothers. Uh, Leviticus said there, don't be hard-hearted, be soft-hearted. But guys, you're, you're soft-hearted after you're really hard-headed. You've got to be hard-headed. Good, good intentions don't count. The government, the president, and the Congress routinely refuse to acknowledge a, another law, and that's the law of unintended consequences. And the fact that you mean to do a certain thing through your actions or legislation doesn't mean you're going to accomplish your ends. And listen, under the welfare nation, we have reduced ourselves, government, sort of to a thief at significant levels. You know, everyone needs to pay taxes, uh, defense, fire, roads, water, you know, you, all those things. The Constitution calls them the general welfare, general good. Absolutely. And that our taxes don't always make people pay sort of fairly, that's a given too. If you do any research, you know, the guy, the CEO at the head of the corporation can pay a, less, uh, a lesser percent tax than his secretary, literally, just because of tax code. So taxes, yeah, it's a given. God tells us to pay our taxes. Um, but when your goal becomes, as a government, to redistribute wealth, that's theft. That's stealing. Because now you've said to one person, you have too much money. And this person doesn't have enough by my standards. And so I'm going to take your money and I'm going to give it to someone else. Redistribution of wealth at some point simply becomes theft. And politicians are not giving away their own money. They're giving away your money and mine. And they're buying votes in the process. This is not a good thing. And if you read historically, too, you'll see that the war on poverty by Johnson really, I wouldn't even say, was well-intended. Uh, Johnson made it clear to those people he knew well, he intended to buy votes for the next several decades, and he's been highly successful. That's theft, though. But listen, this is the other side of government theft. Work, by God's design, is a blessing. Work is not a curse. Work is a blessing. In the Garden of Eden, before the fall, Adam and Eve were commissioned to work. They were gardeners. They took care of the garden. There was no downside to that. Our work is cursed. It has an element of curse today, right, on the earth. There's always uh, thorns on the roses and there's weeds in the garden. But work, as work, is not cursed. Work is a blessing. Read Ecclesiastes and you'll see that for our experience on the earth, you know one of God's great blessings that's meant for us is to work hard. It's to enjoy the fruit of that work with the family God gives us. It's said over and over in Ecclesiastes. And when we work, we get a satisfaction that you cannot get any other way. We were made to be productive. And we are co-creators with God when we're exercising dominion over even some small sphere that we have responsibility for. God means that to bless us. So when we 
whether we mean to or not, through government policy, through church practice, through private practice, when we, through our generosity to others, encourage indolence, a lack of work, we are actually robbing from those people, through our example and our policy, the blessing God means them to have through labor. This is no small thing. And guys, our culture has been cursed by a soft-headed, soft-hearted desire to bless others, but it's against God's will, it's against the Scriptures, it does not stack up with the way God means us to be blessed. When we pay women to have children with no father, we encourage fathers not to be fathers. That family is cursed. Those children are cursed. If you look at crime statistics, you can almost peg if a boy especially grows up without a father, he's like three or four times more likely to get into trouble with the law. You can't get away from this. We say we're blessing, we're cursing through our policies. This is not a good thing. God generally remind, or, uh, God's general intention for us as far as our provision is this. First, we're responsible for ourselves. We meet our own needs. If I'm unable to meet my own needs, my family, biblically, would be the next group that should take care of me. If my family can't meet my needs, and this was the widows you see in 1 Timothy 5, then the church was going to come up and they were going to meet those needs. And government would be the very last, that larger society, that would be the last means of providing for someone's needs, not the first. You know, the pilgrims learned a valuable lesson that took them only two years to learn it. If we don't have skin in the game, if we're not personally responsible, our whole motivation on work changes. When we follow God's principles and Paul's command in Jesus' name to the Thessalonians and to the pilgrims and to ourselves today, we work, we're responsible, and we gain all the benefit of that. And we get to be generous towards others. If we're a homemaker, if we're going to a job, if we're a student, all that work is supposed to be an offering to God as our worship. And we turn around and we're blessed too because we're blessed in the doing. So Thursday, Thanksgiving, when we're sitting around, we're thanking God for our blessings. Guys, thank God for the responsibility He's given us to Him and to each other to work. And thank Him for the ways He's given us to be responsible and to chip in. If that's as a child taking out the trash, or if that's as a student working hard at my studies, or if that's as a father or a mother or an adult going to work, These are blessings from God. This is not a curse. God means to bless us in all of that, just as the early pilgrims learned. Well, let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, uh, it's striking that you're so serious about our labors. And Lord, you worked in the creation of the heavens and the earth. That was your work, and you commissioned us today to work and to to exercise dominion, Lord, in that sphere of responsibility you've given each one of us, no matter how small or how big. God, help us to see your blessing in that. Help us to honor you by being faithful in the jobs and the tasks you've given us to. God, help us to be free, to be able to be generous towards others as well. And Lord, this week and this Thanksgiving especially, just say thank you again for your providential care for you at your cost, buying us back, redeeming us, Lord, from sin and death through the offering of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And let us honor him, Lord, in all the works that you've given us to do. In Jesus' name, amen.